look tonight at chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. There's 22 chapters. We're at 18. So four to go. Father, thank you for your blessing tonight. We pray you be with us, guide us, lead us, direct us, and help us, Lord. Uh, Lord, to glean from this great word, this prophecy that wraps up the New Testament. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Can you say, Lord, speak to me tonight? Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's scary, but it's good. <laughs> Amen. You can be seated. Praise God. All right. Um, like I said, we are in chapter 18 tonight, but I want to do a quick review because the book of Revelation is so, uh, well, it's long for one thing, 22 chapters. And it's got so much in it that it's really easy to lose track and forget in the jumble of information what we've already learned. So I want to, I want to review. Um, chapter 1, quickly, we see Jesus Christ manifested in all of his resurrected glory, and that is the vision that John is greeted with. Um, not the Lamb of God that was walking around on earth, uh, healing sick, raising the dead, the meek and mild Lamb of God, but now hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like brass, voice like a Niagara Falls, and it's the resurrected Messiah. Very different. Then you go to chapters 2 and 3, and Jesus is talking to seven different churches and telling them different things regarding themselves. One thing we do note he sees exactly what's going on in every one of them. He know, as a matter of fact, he starts all of them with this phrase, I know your works. I know your works. I know what you're about. I know what you're doing. I know your works. And uh, so seven churches, all right? Now when he's done addressing the seven churches at the end of chapter three, we never come across the church again. That's it. Uh, the only time we see the church is a bunch of redeemed people in heaven because we believe the rapture has happened. All right? So the church is not on earth anymore. Starting with chapter 4, John goes into straight prophecy. And the Lord Jesus shows him uh, exactly what's going to come on the earth, particularly in the time period called the Great Tribulation, the seven-year Great Tribulation time period. That's what John sees. So for seven years, the worst tribulation to ever rock the planet happened. Now we know that it comes by way of 21 different judgments. All right? 21. And they, are in, they come in uh, groups of seven. There's the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And to my to my discernment or my studying or my opinion is they get worse uh, the trumpet judgments are terrible but the old judgments at the end are the worst of all so they they grow or they increase in intensity until you're kind of amazed there's much left at the end of that uh those 21 judgments and the bottom line is not much is left all right because it's darkest before the dawn. So, we've also seen, skipping forward, jumping forward, is that 
ancient Rome is going to be revived in the last days. And it will consist of a ten-nation confederacy or a beast with ten heads. We've seen that this has already begun through the European Union of today. Now, this is a lot of information, but you've got to track with me because um, clearly John is predicting that the old Roman Empire or the characteristics of it is going to be resurrected in the last days. It's going to reappear in the last days. Well, what was ancient Rome like? It was tyrannical. It was oppressive. It was uh, dictatorial. It was godless. It was ruthless. It was controlling. And it covered the whole known world of that day. That Rome is going to reappear under the leadership of the one called the Antichrist. So you're not going to have, you know, the same buildings or Caesars or anything like that, but you will have an ultimate Caesar, and that's the Antichrist. And his rule, which will last seven years, is going to be just like old Rome in its characteristics. Oppressive, tyrannical, dictatorial, ruthless, godless, you name it. That's what it's going to look like on planet Earth. So... The European Union seems to be the best bet for the resurrection of ancient Rome. It seems to me it's a good candidate. I'm real hesitant to stand up here and say definitively uh, it's going to be the European Union because we don't know um, exactly what Revelation is predicting until we're looking at it when it comes to things like what will the reappeared Rome look like. Well, it's a good guess that it's going to come under the guise of the European Union because Rome is Europe and it's going to be resurrected. European Union, a great candidate. European Union began with 10 full member nations. You remember that beast with 10 heads. And this political entity may very well be what the Antichrist will seize and use in order to gain power during the Great Tribulation. Now, we also observed what John called the great harlot. You remember the great harlot? What in the world is the great harlot? It's an apostate religious system pictured as a woman riding atop a beast. That's what John saw. So the harlot is going to be religious. And the, the beast itself, political. The harlot will appear beautiful on the outside, but be wicked and vile within. And this harlot is seen to be drunk with the blood of God's saints. So, beautiful on the outside, but diabolical, wicked, persecuting the church, persecuting believers on the inside. Uh, terrible on the inside. Martyring, killing, murdering God's people. And this harlot, this religious system that is apostate, that has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof, will be the vehicle used by Antichrist, who is the beast, to persecute and kill true believers. Alright? So amazingly, it's a woman riding atop a beast that the European Union has selected as their symbol. What are the odds? 
When you go to select a symbol to represent you, you have a million possibles. How in the world would the European Union decide on a woman atop a beast? I mean, what are the odds? I'm just saying it could be that that's the vehicle European Union Antichrist will use, seize control of, to exercise his power during that seven-year tribulation period. John's description of the harlot carried on the back of the beast suggests a demonic duo, one political, the other religious. So you've got the Antichrist and what Revelation identifies as the false prophet. Works right alongside Antichrist. That false prophet is a religious figure. He will be overseeing a religious uh, movement. But it will not be of God. It will not be of Christ. It will not be centered around the Word of God. It will be apostate. It will look impressive, but it will be apostate. That is, have nothing to do. Have denounced and renounced the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a demonic duo. Antichrist, political, the false prophet, who I think could be a pope. If you were raised Catholic, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you, but it could be a pope. Because who else has the ear of the world religiously other than, or in a greater way than the pope? I can't think of any. And, you know, not every pope has been exactly what you would hope for. Right? So, but their demonic union will not last. John closes chapter 17 with this. He says, The angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages telling us that the influence of this apostate religious system will touch the entire world. The beast, that's the Antichrist, and the ten horns, which is the ten nations that join with the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation, will hate the prostitute, says John, They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth, Rome. All right, now. So here's what is going on during the Great Tribulation. At the beginning of the Tribulation, the Antichrist will step onto the stage of the world. Will step right onto the world stage. And he will begin to exercise power over the world. He will be joined by a religious leader who will, according to the Bible, go so far as to call fire out of heaven. He will perform signs and wonders so that the world goes after him. And he's pointing to Antichrist. He's sort of like a demonic John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, there's your guy. There's your guy. This false prophet will point to Antichrist and say, there's your guy. There he is. And I'm, and I'm doing these miracles to attest to the fact that he's your guy. And he will bewitch the world with these signs and wonders. But halfway through the tribulation period, when the, anti, the Antichrist will turn on the harlot religious system. Probably because he wants to be the center of worship himself. The Antichrist is a narcissist in all caps, squared to the hundredth power. All right? 
He is your ultimate narcissist. And he will turn on this religious system halfway through when he walks into the rebuilt temple, into the Holy of Holies, and sits down and says, I am God. Clearly, he's ready to be the one worshipped. And he doesn't want any other form of worship on the earth. And so he totally destroys the apostate religious system and sets himself up as the number one deity to be worshipped. I know you can't amen that, but agree with me, heavy stuff. Right? All right, then, just when the world is resting in a false security, Antichrist, as I've just said, will break his covenant with Jewish people, walk into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and desecrate it by declaring himself to be God. And it'll be televised all over the world. The whole world will hear him say, I am God. They will, they will hear it said. And this is what Daniel and Jesus both call the abomination of desolation. Jesus warned, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, for then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Because as soon as he says, I am God, everything is set in motion for the final great war of mankind. The, the war of Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo and that is going to be so bad that if Christ didn't return to stop it, no flesh would be saved. Now, whereas chapter 17 reveals the appearance of the great harlot and an apostate religious system and her destruction at the hands of Antichrist in Revelation chapter 17 is really presenting to us spiritual Babylon, all right? Because it will be confusion. It'll be confusion. To be a part of that great tribulation apostate church, you can be anything you want to be. You can be Buddhist. You, you, can be, uh, you, you can be Muslim. You can be a tree hugger. You can be any religion you want. You can believe anything you want. The whole message of this apostate religious system is going to be love. We need to come together under the banner of love and just love one another. You believe what you want, I'll believe it. It's the, it's the bumper sticker, coexist. I, I look at that bumper sticker and I think, that's a stupid, I hope you don't have it. If you have it, I'm sorry. I'm not meaning to offend anybody. But it's the stupidest thing in all the world because every religion on it declares to be the only way and they're not about to coexist. But here's the deal. That will be the bumper sticker for the last day's apostate religious system. Religious church, headed up by the false prophet. That will be, they might as well keep that bumper sticker hanging around and distribute it during the seven-year tribulation period because that's going to be how the false prophet brings everybody together. Let's just coexist. Let's just love one another. Can't we all just get along? Right? I'm not going to judge you. You don't judge me. We won't judge each other. We're under the banner of love. But it will be wicked to the core and it will persecute true believers all over the world. So in chapter 17, you have the Babylonian or the Babylon religious system. But in chapter 18, everybody, you've got a real city 
that is going to be there during the Great Tribulation. And guess what? Babylon is going to be rebuilt. Babylon. Everybody say, buh, 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 Babel. Right? When, when you see Babylon, it means confusion. Confusion. All right? I can't understand you. You can't understand me. It's confusion. And so, let's talk a minute about Babylon. There are two Babylons in the Bible. As already mentioned, there is a spiritual Babylon. All right? The apostate religious church of the last days that I believe I'm watching form right now. Oh, we see it forming right now. All right? And there is a literal physical Babylon, a capital city accompanied by a system and a culture that comes under judgment before Christ returns. This city of Babylon will be the central business center of the Antichrist. You remember in Revelations 2 where Jesus talks about a church or he's addressing a church and he, I think it's Pergamos, and he said uh, Pergamos is the throne of Satan or it's where Satan is enthroned, all right? That was then, but now in the, in the Great Tribulation, the rebuilt Babylon is going to be the throne of Satan, the central place of the Antichrist, his business center in the Great Tribulation period. A literal city of Babylon is going to be the center. We note that from Genesis to Revelation, the name Babylon has come up again and again and again. Let's look at it. Babylon was founded by the first world dictator. What was his name? Nimrod. It's mentioned over, three, it's mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. Many of the prophecies concerning this fascinating city have not yet been fulfilled. I'm going to say that again. If the Bible predicts something, folks, you can stake your life on it. It's going to happen. And there are prophecies about Babylon, a rebuilt Babylon, that have not yet been fulfilled. That means they will be. They await the timing of God. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah each spend two chapters detailing the catastrophic destruction that awaits this city. The result of the final devastation will leave it uninhabitable. Even the building materials are never going to be reused. It's going to have Ichabod written all over it. This clearly has never happened in the history of Babylon. It's never happened. So it's going to happen. So we need to pay attention to it. Babylon is referred referred to as a literal city, a literal physical great city, five times in chapter 18. Five times of the book of Revelation. Most prophecy scholars believe that the Babylon of chapter 18 is going to be a literal rebuilt city. And I'm going to show you that's more than likely, really almost inarguably true. Based on John's vivid description of her destruction, it has to be a literal city. If so, it may very well be talking about the Babylon currently located in Iraq. Did you know that? There's a Babylon right now located in Iraq. 
Have you ever wondered why Iraq is so much in the world news? Or why Iraq has been such an area of satanic activity and satanic attack? And just really some really bad stuff? Have you ever wondered why it's, it's such a focal point? Well, most people have no idea the crucial role Iraq has played in the Bible. Uh, let me give you some examples. Now, when I talk about Iraq and the examples I'm giving now, I'm talking about the landmass, the geographical landmass that we now call Iraq. It might have been like, for instance, ancient Persia. The ancient landmass of Persia is today Iran and Iraq. So when I talk about Iraq right now, I'm talking about the geographical location that we have called Iraq for a long time now. The Garden of Eden was in Iraq. Genesis 2, 10 to 14. Adam and Eve were created in Iraq. Genesis 2, 7 to 8. You know that Satan made his first recorded appearance in the world in Iraq when he approached Eve in the garden? Nimrod established Babylon and the Tower of Babel in Iraq. And that is where God confused them by the languages. The confusion of the languages took place in Iraq. So that's why we call it Babel on. What's Babylon? You babble on and on and on. Babel on. Are y'all with me tonight? Okay. Further, Abraham came from a city in Iraq. Isaac's bride came from Iraq. I almost wanted to say, can any good thing come out of Iraq? Yes. And that was uh, Isaac's bride. Jacob spent 20 years in Iraq. The first world empire, Babylon, was in Iraq. It was in Iraq that Daniel was thrown to the lions, and it was in Iraq that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the burning, fiery oven. The greatest revival in history was in the city, or in a city in Iraq, Nineveh. Nineveh was in Iraq, the landmass of Iraq, and the greatest revival in world history with the least amount of preaching necessary to make it happen. I think, I think Jonah's message was like eight words. And that's it. He just preached it all through uh, Nineveh, and they repented. About a century later, they came under judgment, but in the meantime, they repented. The events of the book of Esther took place in Iraq. Ezekiel was there when the glory of God was seen in its fullness by the Kiber River. Babylon was in Iraq. And the book of Nahum took place in Iraq. So Iraq is all through the Bible. It's a very significant place. But guess what? It's the beginning of satanic evil. The beginning of satanic evil was in Iraq. Because that's where the devil first showed up. So in Iraq, we see the beginning of creation. But in Iraq, we also see the beginning of satanic evil. In that place called Iraq. No wonder Iraq is on the world stage like it is. Um, things began here, and guess what? Things may very well end there. You thought, well, I thought everything was going to end in America. Because everything's all about America. I don't even find America in Bible prophecy. But I find Iraq everywhere. Perhaps this is why such ferocious battles have taken place in Iraq. Now, will Iraq, therefore, 
flourish again? Yes. And will it play a key role in end time prophecy? Yes. Will America? No. But Iraq will. Many people are unaware of this. Let me give you some facts about modern day Iraq. In 1983, good old Saddam Hussein started rebuilding Babylon on top of the old ruins, investing in its restoration and its new construction. Now remember, the Bible said it's got to reappear. Babylon, we're talking about Babylon. It was destroyed centuries and centuries ago. It's got to reappear. Most people don't know Saddam Hussein began rebuilding it. In 1985, he began the task, spending over $500 million to reconstruct the city and build a modern residence on the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Because who who ruled in Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. He inscribed his name on many of the bricks in imitation of Nebuchadnezzar. Did you know that Saddam Hussein thought he was a resurrected or reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar? Oh yeah, he did. That's exactly what he thought. One frequent inscription reads, This was built by Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. He called himself the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody say, that's crazy. But that's who he was identifying with. That's who he thought he was. People think all kinds of weird things these days. This is who he thought he was. He was taken out, but not Babylon. As I speak, plans are underway to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon. I did a little search, and let me tell you what I found. Today, what's called the UN Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization is pumping millions of dollars into Babylon and several other historical sites in Iraq. With the help of private donors, the UN is hoping to turn Babylon into a thriving center of tourism and commerce. Can you imagine? Honey, where do you want to go for vacation this summer? Let's go to Babylon. Can you imagine? But they're wanting to resurrect it to the level that is literally... Well, let me read what I found. If everything goes according to plan, Babylon will be a cultural center complete with shopping malls, hotels, and maybe even a theme park. Where'd y'all go for vacation last summer? We went to Babylon. Oh, it was great. We hit that theme park. It was an incredible theme. It put Disney to shame there in Babylon. Can you imagine getting a postcard from your family who are vacationing in Babylon? But that's, that's what's going to happen, folks. We're reading it right here. Remember, there are prophecies in the Bible about Babylon that have not yet been fulfilled. But if the Bible says it, mark it down, stake your life on it, it's going to happen. Bible prophecy never fails. It's never late. And it, it never falls short of everything, right down to every jot and tittle that it predicted. Joel Rosenberg in his best-selling nonfiction book, Epicenter 2.0, maybe you read that, wrote about the Bible prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Revelation that indicate the ancient city of Babylon 
uh, in Iraq will in fact be rebuilt in the last days of history and will become the wealthiest and most powerful city on the face of the planet. And that is where Antichrist will have his headquarters. Are you with me? Amen. Well, Pastor Jeff, I'm not interested in Babylon. You ought to be. If you want to, be cha- if you want to chase down some really interesting unfolding prophecy, do a search on Babylon. Stay on top of what's going on in Babylon. Because it's really going to play an end-time prophecy. But God has a war- word of warning to believers located there in the last days. To tribulation saints that are there in the last days. He commands them, come out of her and flee from the midst of Babylon. And each of you save his life before God destroys Babylon. And I just quoted Revelations 18. John predicts that this great city with its culture and its considerable financial strength is going to be completely destroyed. Now I want you to listen to it. My Bible sees the end of something before the beginning even starts. And here it is. Revelations 18, 4-7. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven, Come away from her, my people. Get out of Babylon, tribulation saints. Get out of there. Don't take part in her sins or you'll be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven and God remembers her evil deeds. Do not, or or rather, verse 6, do to her as she has done to others. Double her penalty for all of her evil deeds. Now he's going to tell us what Babylon will have done by the time God judges her. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself. She lived in luxury. So, So match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I'm queen on my throne. I am no helpless widow and I have no reason to mourn. And here's what God is saying in those passages. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You always harvest what you plant. Always. You reap what you sow. And God is telling us in 4 through 7 there in chapter 18, Babylon is going to reap what she has sown just before Christ returns. John lays out her doom. Listen to it. Now this, you got to keep in mind, here's a major city, according to some, the major city of the world in the Great Tribulation period. All right? And suddenly, this city comes under a ferocious judgment that the whole world witnesses. So let's read about it. Verse 8, Therefore these plagues will overtake her, Babylon, in a single day. Death and mourning and famine will be completely consumed by fire. She will be. For the Lord God who judges her is mighty. It is beyond dispute, church, that the catastrophe described here has never yet been fulfilled at any time in Babylonian history. This is yet to be fulfilled. Three times the expression in one hour. Everybody say, in one hour. Now catch this, in one hour. That's verses 10, 17, and 19. In one hour indicates sudden, in a flash, catastrophic judgment. Like when Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. Bang! 
judgment. The final capital will be consumed by fire in a short span of time. Reminiscent of a nuclear inferno. It could be nuclear. We don't know. John sees monarchs, merchants, and sea captains caught up in the Holocaust destruction. Uh, Verse 9, And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will wail for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, How terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city. In a single moment, there it is again, God's judgment came on you. Now, it shows the merchants and the who's who's of the world of commerce wailing over the destruction of this city. Wail in the Greek language means a loud lamentation as opposed to silent weeping. John shows that the impact of Babylon's destruction will reverberate in all the financial markets of the world. There will be a total financial collapse when Babylon Antichrist's headquarters is judged. Verse 11, the merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there's no one left to buy their goods. She bought great quantities from them of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, cloth, things made of fragrant wood, ivory goods, and objects made of expensive wood, and bronze, iron, and marble. She also bought Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine. Do you see that this final reappeared city of Babylon is going to have been purchasing like crazy from all the major merchants of the world? The the, the world economy was dependent on this city before Christ returns. But but something interesting is mentioned at the end. Fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and of slaves, the bodies and souls of men. Now those are disturbing words if you stop and think about it because what is it saying? It's saying that there's going to be a lot of slavery during the Great Tribulation period. Slavery and the souls of men. The souls of men. It's been estimated that one third of Rome's population was enslaved in ancient Rome. It wasn't unusual for 10,000 human beings to be auctioned off in one day. Can you imagine that? 10,000 human beings auctioned off in one day in ancient Rome. There were probably over 60 million slaves in ancient Rome who were treated like pieces of furniture, bought and sold, used and abused. Now, is John suggesting that there will be, in the end times, a return to slavery? Maybe not in the ancient sense, but with sex trafficking and other forms of modern-day slavery, which is everywhere, right under your nose, uh, this may not be too far-fetched at all. With tyranny comes the devaluation of life. And tyranny will be the order of the day in the Great Tribulation. Tyranny. I know this is not upbeat and jump up and shout and hallelujah, this is really cool. But the Bible told us this for a reason. The Bible wants us to know this for a reason. All right? 
So it's going to be a terrible time period. That's why the time to get saved is now. Because you can get saved during the Great Tribulation, but this is what you're going to be surrounded by. No, thank you. I will not get on that bus. Right? And also, as people become more enslaved to luxury, with more bills to pay, they find themselves unable to break loose from the system, which may well be the meaning here. The beast system. Their literal souls are enslaved to this godless, satanic world order. It doesn't take much imagination to conceive of a universal enslavement under the rule of the beast. We've already seen that he's going to require the mark of the beast on every hand or forehead, Revelations 13, 16 to 17. And he also demands that all people worship his image. All right? So that's slavery. You know, if you want to be a part of the system, you've got to get marked. And if you get marked, you're sold out to the system. And if you're sold out to the system, you're damned. And all kinds of bad things happen to anybody with this mark. All right? So, Antichrist is going to take advantage of the people's appetites, according to verse 14 of chapter 18. And he's going to use their appetites to enslave them. He says in verse 14, the ripe fruits and the delicacies for which your soul longed are gone from you. And all your luxuries and dainties, your elegance and splendor are lost to you, never again to be recovered or experienced. What God gives, God can take away. Boy, could I say some things about our country right now, but I'm going to hold back. I'll say this much. Are we watching the things that were given to us? being taken away from us? Oh, my friend. That's why the Bible is so relevant. Because it tells us the way God operates. It tells us the way God functions. It tells us the things God judges. It tells us the things God blesses. And people tend to think, for some reason, well, not America. America's you know, land of the free, home of the brave. It's God's special land. Can I tell you something? It is not God's special land. No. Was it dedicated to Christ at its beginning? Yes. But read your Bible. We weren't God's special people like Israel or like Judah, and God did not hesitate one minute to judge them when they refused to repent. And if God judged Judah and took them into 70 years of captivity, if He judged Israel... The, t- the ten northern tribes, and they've been dispersed throughout the world, and they never did regather? Do you think America, some reason, for some reason, is special? No. Look at God says in Jeremiah 8.13 about His own people. I will surely consume them. There will be no more harvest of figs and grapes. Their fruit trees will all die. Whatever I gave them will soon be gone. I, the Lord, have spoken. When God blesses you with something, you walk with God if you want to keep it. Amen? Because let me tell you, whatever you choose over God, whatever you choose over God, you will one day lose or grow to hate. Whatever you place in the throne of your heart above God, I guarantee you, Whatever idol you pick, it can be a person. 
It can be a job. It can be a career. It can be yourself. It can be money. It can be anything. Uh, But whatever you choose to place first in your life over God, you'll either grow to hate it or you'll one day lose it. Mark it down. But if you put Jesus first in your heart, you're not ever going to lose him. Amen? That's right. John predicts horror on the part of those who traded with this resurrected Babylon. Verse 15, the dealers who handled these articles, who grew wealthy through their business with her, will stand a long way off in terror of her doom and torment, weeping and grieving aloud and saying, Alas, alas, for the great city that was robed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, bedecked and glittering with gold, with precious stones and with pearls, because in one single hour all the vast wealth has been destroyed, wiped out. And all ship captains and pilots, navigators, and all who live by seafaring, the crews and all who ply their trade on the sea stood a long way off and exclaimed as they watched the smoke of her burning, what city could be compared to the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and as they wept and grieved, exclaiming, woe and alas for the great city where all who had ships on the sea grew rich through her extravagance from her great wealth. In one single hour, she has been destroyed and become a desert. All those who profited from Antichrist's brief reign will mourn the fall of his system. Because what we're watching here in the fall of Babylon is the fall of Antichrist's whole world system. It's collapsing. It's collapsing. It's collapsing. But these merchants, they're selfish. They're not really grieving over Babylon's pain. They're grieving over their own loss. Man, our our source of income, it's biting the dust right in front of us. Boo-hoo-hoo. Cry me a river. They don't care about Babylon, just what they're losing. Then John reveals why this destruction has befallen as we come to the close. Revelations 18.20 Rejoice and celebrate over her, O heaven. O saints, people of God, and apostles and prophets, because God has executed vengeance for you upon her. And in her was found the blood of prophets and the blood of saints and of all those who have been slain and slaughtered on earth. Do you remember the souls of the martyred saints that were underneath the altar way back in, I think, Revelation 6? And they were crying out for vengeance. How long, Lord, before you avenge uh, our lives on those who murdered us just because we stood for you? How long will it be before you avenge us? This is it right here. The judgment of Antichrist's kingdom. Because it was his kingdom that martyred those people. And now it's collapsing in front of the eyes of the world. Something can look very strong one day, church and be nothing the next day. Amen? Amen. A mighty angel appears next to pronounce six terrible never-agains over Babylon, and we're almost done. Let's read it, Revelations 18, 21. Then a single powerful angel took up a boulder, like a great millstone, and flung flung it into the sea, crying, with such violence shall Babylon, the great city, be hurled down to destruction. Here's the first never again, and never again be found. Never again be found. 
This time when Babylon bites the dust, it's for good. Verse 22, the sound of harpists and minstrels and flute players and trumpeters will never again be heard in you. No more joy ever again in that city. And no skilled artisan of any craft will ever again be found in you. You're not going to produce anything else ever again. And the sound of the millstone shall never again be heard in you. Commerce and any kind of an economy and work will never happen again in that city. And never again shall the light of a lamp shine in you. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall never be heard in you again. No more marriages, no more families, no more nothing. It's all gone. For your businessmen were the great and prominent men of the earth, and by your magic, spells, and poisonous charm, all nations were led astray, seduced, and deluded. You get that? Babylon was steeped in witchcraft. The Babylon that will be judged was steeped in witchcraft. And by the witchcraft of Babylon, the whole world would be seduced and deluded. At this point in Revelation, the political and the economic system of the beast has been totally destroyed. All that remains is for Jesus Christ to come from heaven and personally meet and defeat the beast and his armies. And that's what's next week. Jesus comes back. Let's stand together, can we? Amen. I'm I'm ready for some good news after that. But church, do you see with me that you can't mock God? You, you cannot mock God. We, we can't mock God. Um, whatever you sow, you reap. And that's why uh, we need to be praying for our country. So, so praying for our country. Because I personally believe that um, already our country is under judgment. Now, you're not. If you're in Christ, you're not under judgment. You're not. Yeah. But America is. And America needs revival. America needs an awakening. Or you know what? I don't think America can survive under the weight of our own sin. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And when I look at, when I look at what is happening to people, boy, I, didn't, I know I'm going to go much into this, but go home and read Romans 1. I read things like this in the holy, sacred word. And I know that it's true. And this is going to be witnessed by the people of the great tribulation period. They're going to watch this happen. There's going to be a Babylon and it's going to collapse. And the whole economy will collapse and the whole thing will be judged. And I look at that. We see what they did. They killed God's saints. They practiced witchcraft. They didn't embrace Christ. They had a false religion, false everything. Um, wicked to the core. I'm getting music. Oh, you snuck out on me. Yes, I did. I thought, okay. <laughs> kind of blew me away, Ronnie. Okay. Um, But it seems to me, America is under the judgments spoken of in Romans 1. We have people who are no longer sane. 
big swath of the country no longer sane. You know what a reprobate mind is? In Romans 1, there's three turning overs by God. God turned a culture over, turned them over, turned them over three times. Okay? First time, they were turned over to sexual promiscuity. When God began, oh, I didn't mean to go into all this. This isn't anywhere in my notes. But when God begins to judge a nation, one of the first things you can see is a sexual revolution. First thing you're going to see. Because God turns you over, he says, to, to defile yourselves with one another. It's a heterosexual turning over. In the 60s, we had a little thing called the sexual revolution. The second turning over was to a homosexual revolution. God turned them over and the same genders began to lust for each other. I'm, I'm quoting Romans 1. This isn't Jeff. Read it. The third turning over, oh, and that happened in the 80s. America underwent a homosexual revolution. Now, it's fully celebrated and validated and third turning over is to a reprobate mind. That's from a Greek word meaning my mind doesn't work anymore. I can't think straight anymore. I don't think straight anymore. That's what reprobate means. I can't, I can't tell right from wrong, good from bad, light from dark. I can't think good anymore. My mind is no good to me. It's what Isaiah talked about when he said, woe to the people that call evil good and good evil. Light, dark, and dark light. Who puts sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. He says something drastically wrong has gone, uh, has happened to a culture that can no longer tell right from wrong, but even further, they call wrong right and right wrong. That's the reprobate mind. You can't think anymore. I may ask you, are we there? I mean, aren't we watching this happen? Oh, I'm so hesitant to go here, but I'm going to go here just for a second. I was talking tonight before I came here to a person who works at a major, major department store. And now when they are hired, they get a name tag and their name is on the name tag. But you know what they put underneath their name? Their chosen gender. major national chain target now this person I'm talking to said there's somebody that works with me and their chosen pronoun is they 
they, a plural. And if you work with them, you have to address them by the pronoun. Now, why would a singular person want a plural pronoun? Because they believe they're more than one thing. Can you imagine coming up to me and saying, hey, they. Now, I'm not mocking. I'm not. It grieves me to my core because that's, that's insanity. I hope I'm not offending somebody, but folks, we're watching. That's why we need God to move. We need God to move. I mean, and and boy, if I, when this goes on radio, I need to go hide somewhere or at least hire protection because when you go here and you mention this, you catch it. But folks, it's not right. It's, it's off. It's not rational, logical. If I was not even a believer and I just looked at it, If I was an atheist and I just looked at it with logic and leaned on science, I would know what I know as a believer. It's not right. It's not scientifically true. Okay? So if I'm offending you because I'm coming from the Bible, let me offend you coming from science. It's not true scientifically. It's not true. Well, we're in perilous times, and I don't say all these things to to take you down. But to say, hey, folks, we need to pray. We need to pray. So let's lift our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your blessing. And Lord, we just pray for a move of God, that our country would be delivered from this madness, that these poor people, these precious people that are caught up in this level of deception would be set free, delivered from this kind of thinking and be given the spirit of a sound mind and we thank you for your blessing Lord let's pray for evangelism to break forth Lord we just pray help us to win as many souls as possible help us to take the gospel of the north south east and west uh, the remainder of this year help us to reach more people than we've ever reached in our entire existence and we pray for it In the name of Jesus. And can we just say together, thank you, Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen.